All right. This morning, we are going to be reading from John chapter 2. We made it through chapter 1, you guys. All right. Five weeks in, we did it. All right. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. This is going to be on the screens. You can get those Bible apps. If you're looking in your Bible, we're in John. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. All right. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification, and each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim, and then he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first and then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Good morning. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. You know, before we dig into today, uh, a couple of quick housekeeping things. When Renaissance first started, I I dreamed about a day when we would uh, really have meaningful, engaging worship services, and we would gather together as a community. And as time has gone on, one of my enduring hopes is that Renaissance is known for the way that we relate to the Harlem community and the way that our community here uh, is cared for. Thousands of years ago, when the church first started, they noticed that among the explosion of all the people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that there needed to be people to make sure that people were being cared for. In the New Testament, they called that deacons. A deacon's specific job was to care for people. Now, over the last couple of years, we've had a number of men and women who have served Renaissance as deacons, and they've done a phenomenal job of just very simply making sure people are being cared for and making sure that no one is falling through the cracks. One of the things that we believe at Renaissance is that we never want to burn anyone out, and we're starting a new rotation for new deacons, and we sent out an email to the members to nominate uh, people, and that includes nominating yourself uh, as someone who would want to serve in that capacity, which is essentially making sure that people are just being cared for. We're not label heavy here at Renaissance. We uh, We don't carry around titles pretty heavily. It's a behind-the-scenes way that you're making sure that people are being cared for. And here's what I need you to do. I need you to check that email that went out uh, to the, you guys' members and also to uh, think in a community group emails that might be there as well to nominate people who do you think might fit that description and also you might be that person. Also in that email, we sent out a save the date for November 22nd, our uh, annual members dinner, which will talk about our vision for the year and talk about Uh, where we're going, and a lot of stuff to celebrate. And I need you guys to RSVP uh, for that so that we can have a good head count for the fried chicken and waffles. (laughs) Dear Lord, as we come today to uh, study some scripture, I pray that you would make our hearts open to receive it. I pray that you would make our eyes 
open to, to see and our ears open to hear. And Lord, meet us. Meet us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the things I love probably more than anything now is to travel, and I, I'm getting the travel bug, and I've gotten it from my wife. She's actually out traveling right now with her girlfriends. And over the last couple of years, we've been able to go to a lot of different places and see some amazing sites. One of the things that's probably been the most incredible to see are some of the national parks. And um, uh, last year, my family, we were going to go to Utah and uh, to see some national parks. And my wife and I have different strategies and approaches to travel. Now, I am one of those, let's take a nap every day type of travelers. Where are my nap travelers at? Come on, y'all. Let's be proud. Let's be proud about this. My wife is one of those, here's my Excel spreadsheet. Let's do these 19 things. All right, calm down. Calm down. Because of her zest for life, we've been able to enjoy a lot of things and see a lot of things. Um, and this past trip, we, uh, we got there and saw some cool sights, and she said, hey, this is one spot I really want to go to, and it's just one small thing. We kind of have to wake up at 3 in the morning to go there. <laughs> uh, so we went, and uh, we got there to Horseshoe Bend in, uh, in Arizona, and the first thing we saw were just these dusty roads and signs. And I was like, yo, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and drove three hours I'm getting my sneakers dirty. This is a terrible start to this, uh, to this day. And we saw a couple of signs. And then as I was walking, I was like, yo, this better be worth it, for real. I didn't say it. I thought it, though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and all of a sudden, we hit the most majestic thing I've ever seen in my life, Horseshoe Bend. It was absolutely stunning. Just thinking about it honestly makes my, my heart race. We stood there for hours just taking in the majesty of this, the power of water, how it has for millions of years eroded something. Uh, man, you can preach 20 sermons just based on that picture alone, and it was one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen. But, but here's what I noticed. Walking up to Horseshoe Bend, the state of Arizona didn't spend any money in the graphic design of those signs. <laughs> they had two rusty, dusty signs pointing to something. And here's the thing. Signs in and of themselves are not really important. Signs in and of themselves don't have the meaning. Uh, signs are meant to keep you on course and to point you to a reality greater than itself. All those signs were meant to do was to point us towards what we were walking towards and to point to a reality that was greater than itself. Now, this is really interesting as we are in this Gospel of John, looking at this first miracle that Jesus does of turning water into wine. It's important to look at because Jesus, uh, John doesn't call this a miracle. John calls this a sign, meaning that this uh, miracle of Jesus turning water into wine is not really about Jesus telling everybody to keep the party going. This is not to prove that Jesus was not a Baptist and that he had wine at, at parties. <laughs> this was to point to a reality greater than itself. And it's meant to keep us on course and to point to a reality greater than itself. In John 11, I mean 2 verses 11, it says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Not just a miracle, but a sign. Now, this sign that Jesus does is meant to keep you on course in terms of how you can relate and how you should relate to Jesus. Whether you've been following Jesus for 15 seconds or 15 years, 
This sign is going to show you how to relate to Jesus. And not just that, but it's also meant to point you to a reality greater than itself, much greater than turning water into wine. It shows us about the nature and the character of God and what he has come to do in our lives. So it starts off in verse 2. It says, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, it's peculiar that John would start off his gospel this way, starting off his gospel talking about Jesus fixing a mere social embarrassment. Now, the gospels were written with one intention in mind, to, to prove to people and to show to people that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God who has come from all ages and all eternity, and he is now here, and this is what God is like. And why would John start with a miracle about Jesus just fixing a social embarrassment. So what? The wine ran out. Who cares? Not a big deal. I, I think that a lot of times when we approach the Bible, it gives us a lot of confidence to know that the writers put stuff in there, not because they were trying to construct an argument, but because it was true. The Bible ends, or the Gospel of John ends with John talking about the first people to witness the resurrection of Jesus were women. And in those days, women would have lacked credibility to testify about anything. So it starts off with this miracle that doesn't really matter, and it ends with these witnesses who wouldn't be believed. And why would John go to this trouble to include them? Because it's true. If I were writing a gospel about Jesus and I was trying to persuade people about his divinity, I'm going to start when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm pulling that joint out from the beginning like, yo, homie was dead. <laughs> Jesus was like, yo, get up. And he got up. And then it would end. That would be my gospel right there. The stuff that's written is included in the Bible uh, because it's true. I say that because I really want you guys to have confidence, and certainly in this time, in this day and age, where there's so much skepticism about all things of authority, certainly including scripture, man, the reason that these things are included is because they're true, and I want you guys to have confidence that what you're reading is a really trustworthy book that is meant for the nourishment of your souls. So as a, the, the gospel, as this story continues, it says, uh, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? And uh, scholars have talked about this at length. This was not a rude way of addressing her. This was uh, a very kind way that Jesus addresses his mother. Uh, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus is thinking about something bigger and better than just a wedding. He, he's thinking about something bigger and better than just uh, some wine that has run out. He's thinking about his hour and what he has come to do. But here's what we see what it means to relate to Jesus and how I want this story to keep you on course, what it means to relate to Jesus. His mother gives an instruction that is one that we all need to take to heart and shows us what it means to have faith. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, most of us understand faith as an understanding, but faith is not about understanding. Faith is about trust. Underneath what faith, real, durable, biblical faith is, has nothing to do with understanding. These servants would have had no idea why they were being asked to do this or how it would work. They just knew to move in that direction. And the nature of faith, as Christine Kane uh, talks about in one of her sermons, she says, faith is predicated on trust, not understanding. Will you still trust God even when you don't understand what he's doing? Would you still trust God even if you don't understand what he is doing? Now, man, as a pastor, one of the things I get to do is talk to so many people about their faith journeys, and I see so many people who hit roadblocks in their faith journey with Jesus because 
They're just not giving Jesus access to speak into their life that directly, to do whatever he tells you to do. A lot of times we use excuses like, I just need clarity, as a cover-up for not moving in the direction that God is calling us to move into. But your commitment will always come before your clarity. Commitment always precedes clarity. Now, this is true with relationships for sure. How do you know you're supposed to marry this person? You won't until you marry him. (laughs) How do you know you're supposed to hire that person? You won't until you've hired them and you've seen them operate in that role. Now, this is true in a natural sense, but it's also true in a spiritual sense. Commitment always comes after, I mean, clarity always comes after commitment. And if you want more clarity in your life, you kind of have to take Mary's words here to heart to do whatever he tells you to do. There are also pieces of us that don't want people telling us what to do. We don't want people telling us how we should behave because we have our own brains and God doesn't, uh, and certainly God wants us to incorporate our mind and our thinking in our faith journey, but not at the expense of following what God is calling you to do. Here's what I want to push on you. If you're one of those people who's struggling with whether or not to give God access to certain parts of your life, uh, certain parts of what you believe, a Jesus that can't challenge you can't change you. Because all you're really going to be left with is you in a mirror. And all that person in mirrors is is going to be telling you to do is just to be a little bit nicer, uh, be a little bit nicer, be a little bit better. Uh, But that that you in the mirror can't change you. And a lot of us have dressed up Jesus uh, in our own presuppositions of what we're supposed to be doing. The nature of faith from all of the Bible is not about understanding. It's about trust. Uh, In the book of Genesis, uh, this first story of uh, a conversation about faith, and it talks about Abraham, who is the father of faith. And these are the instructions that God gives to Abraham, who was the father of faith, and the example of how you and I are supposed to relate to God. It says in Genesis 12, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Eventually, I'm going to show you. But right now, just walk. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And verse 4 is such a, a, an example, a sign of what it looks like to relate to God in faith. So Abraham went just as the Lord had told him. Commitment always comes before clarity and, and certainty. One of the things that I would want you to evaluate in your own life is, have you leveraged your life in such a way that if Jesus doesn't come through for you, you're going to look stupid? In this analogy, in this story, in this miracle that we see happening in Scripture, the, uh, Mary tells these servants to go and fill up these, uh, these jars to the brim, and then, and then Jesus tells them to bring this water that's going to be turned into wine to the headmaster, and they know all I put in here was water. And I'm going to rely on Jesus in such a way that I'm going to take this water to someone who's asking for wine. And unless Jesus changes it and does something, I'm going to look foolish. This is the call of faith, that you would leverage your life in such a way that unless Jesus moves, unless Jesus is present, unless Jesus is real, you're going to look silly. Now, that's tough for me if I'm going to hop off my high horse for a second because I love control. I love to believe like I'm in control. I know I'm really not, but I, would love, I love the illusion that I'm in, uh, I'm in control of life, and that's gotten me into some pretty bad situations. Years ago, I was in Jamaica, and uh, we were uh, on a boat doing some water skiing, and you guys know that I'm a competitive person most of the time to a fault, 
And I saw some people water skiing, and I wasn't going to let them out-stunt out me. So they were going about 10 miles an hour. I was like, yo, whatever you were doing for them, double it, bro. When we, when we got up there, I'm about to put on a show. Seven seconds into my water skiing, I was being dragged underneath the water, praying and hoping that this five-foot-three Jamaican man would mercifully pull up off the gas and let me live. <laughs> Holding onto the rope and water gushing into my mouth mercifully, he finally let go of the throttle, and he turned and looked at me. He says, Jordan, let go of the rope, man. <laughs> now, unfortunately, that story is also a metaphor for my life. I've held on to the rope in so many situations where I should have just let go. And in the process, I've drowned and almost drowned in frustration and anxiety because I love control. Make no mistake about it, there are some things that are true about me that might be true about you. I would always prefer certainty over uncertainty. I never want to have to operate in a situation that's uncertain of how my time and my investment uh, will result in. And to hear these words, to do whatever he tells you to do without knowing how it's going to work gives me a lot of anxiety. Uh, this morning, I was talking to uh, Russell and Kevin. Uh, Russell is one of our church planting residents here and he, in, uh, in the fall. He's going to be launching a church in Union Square. And uh, he was talking about this nature and this journey of what it looks like to start a church from scratch that, like, man, unless God does it, I'm going to look really stupid. Like, unless God brings the money and brings the people and brings the staff and the location, like, I really have to trust Jesus for real now. Like, my life now is... I pushed all of my chips to the center of the table in such a way that it's uncertain. But man, this is where you get to see the good stuff happen. This is where you get to see Jesus actually work in your life. Now, I don't only prefer certainty over uncertainty. I always prefer feeling powerful over feeling or being vulnerable. I hate having to depend on people. I hate having to feel like things are ahead of me are uncertain. It's just not a good feeling. And when I hear words like Mary's words to just do whatever he tells you to do, it just feels vulnerable. Not only that, but I would always prefer independence over dependence. I would always prefer being independent of not needing anybody to do anything for me, God included, over being dependent. Rick Warren once talked about uh, the goal of Christian parenting. And he mentioned that the goal of Christian parenting is to raise your kids from, from dependence on you to independence from you to dependence on Christ. Wow. Dependence on you, to independence from you, to dependence on Christ. And we're all trying to figure out that part of the journey. But the nature of faith is this. Make no mistake about it. It's dependence. It's uncertainty. It's being vulnerable. But this is where we get to see God work in our lives. The scripture continues as uh, in, in verse 6. Now, six stone water jars had been there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I brought this up on stage so you can get a picture of what a gallon looks like, not because I was going to be this thirsty during uh, the message. But man, this is so dope in this, in this story that, Jesus, that John is telling about Jesus. And man, this points to an amazing sign of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to bring purification in a brand new way. Jesus intentionally uses these six stone water jars, which were meant for Jewish purification, to make wine. And wine, all throughout the New Testament, has been a symbol of his blood. Later on today, as we take communion, we'll see that Jesus makes explicit connections between his blood and what wine represent. 
that Jesus is saying here that he's bringing purification in a brand new way. Now, what is purification? It's not a concept that you probably think about too often. Purification is the process by which an unclean person, according to Levitical law, who was cut off from the sanctuary, which is connection from God, and festivals, which was connection with the people, and was restored to the enjoyment of all of these privileges. What Jesus has come to do in his own person by spilling his blood was to restore us to God and to restore us to other people. But he wasn't going to do it in the way uh, that the Jewish tradition was. So the Jewish tradition was that annually you had this, this thing called a day of atonement. And one day a year, you would have uh, a sheep or a goat that was uh, slaughtered, and the whole uh, tribe would come to the sanctuary, and they would feast on this lamb, which has been slaughtered, so that they could um, receive God's forgiveness for them. And they had to do this festival every year, because every year, that lamb ran out. Like, they had to keep on re-upping it, because it was never meant to be a permanent sacrifice. Later in the book of Hebrews, he talks about Jesus being this permanent sacrifice who doesn't need to be crucified again over and over and over again, but that his once and for all sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. Jesus proves this to us because of something that the scholars have wrestled with in this text about the amount of wine that he produced. So it's late in the wedding. Your uncle is on the dance floor doing a cha-cha slide. He's like seven drinks in. He's feeling good. He's feeling loose, embarrassing everybody in the family. And then they realize that the wine has run out. Everybody at this point had been drinking the wine and consuming a large amount, probably more than they thought they would to at this point. Jesus comes late in the game and produces about 150 gallons of wine after everybody has already had their fill. What does the headmaster say? Nobody brings a good one for the, for, the, for the last time after everyone has had their fill. He's saying, basically, this is the amount of, of, of wine. So Cana is a small town. Uh, it's about 15,000 people. There's no indication that this person who was getting married, these people getting married were big people, that it would be a huge wedding. So essentially, what John is saying is, has happened is this. At the end of the wedding, where everybody has already had stuff to drink, Jesus produces enough for everyone to have a gallon of wine, for everyone to have their own gallon should they be able to consume it. Now, I've been around a lot of interesting people, <laughs> but I have never met someone who can polish, polish off a gallon of wine by themselves. And I certainly have never been in a room where 150 people can polish off a gallon of wine by themselves after they've already been drinking. For the whole day, what is it showing us? That there is no limit to Jesus' purification. That Jesus is a better savior than you are a sinner. That his blood can cover more than we can consume. There is no limit to what Jesus offers. Paul picks up on this notion in the book of Romans where he says, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Now, this is not a license to do whatever you want. Please don't hear me as saying that. Please don't hear me as saying that. But what this does mean is that that guilt that you wrestle with day after day about not measuring up is really a belief that Jesus' blood can't cover your sins. What we see in this scripture is that the level of wine that Jesus produced was to show us, again, this is a sign, right? This sign shows us what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus and that there is no limit 
There is no limit to what his blood can cover. It's more than enough. It's more than enough. Now, I meet so many people who struggle with, uh, with guilt, and I'm certainly one of those people myself who somehow I believe that I'm going to hit a point and it's going to, like, run dry. What is this miracle? What is this sign showing us? It's 180 gallons. Everybody has already had their fill. There's no way on God's green earth anyone is going to finish this. Jesus produces in abundance. His grace for us is abundant. It can cover every aspect of our lives. Charles Spurgeon once said it like this, that the bridge of grace can bear your weight. The bridge of God's grace can bear your weight. Now, I've heard this quote. It says, do not think if you come to Jesus accepting him as your savior that the day will come when you find yourself empty of joy or disappointed. If that ever happens, it will be because you have drawn away from him, not because he has failed you. Certainly, the Christ who produced the abundance of wine, who oversupplied the loaves and fishes, is able to supply all your need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Uh, the purification that Jesus offers is more than you can consume. This also shows us, this text, the nature of discipleship. And discipleship is a fancy-schmancy theological word that just means you taking obedience to the next step. That's all discipleship is. American concepts of discipleship is very information-based in that we think that we need more information. But here in this text, it shows us what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to relate to him. And uh, here's what it says in verses 7 and 8. It says, this is Jesus talking to the servants. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Jesus, no mis uh, make no mistake about it, he wants you to experience the abundance of his life. He wants you to experience the abundance of what he has to offer. And to do that, he involves us. And sometimes Jesus asks us to do things that on their own are mundane and probably take a lot of effort, but it's going to produce a result. So this is before there was a Home Depot and a Lowe's. When Jesus tells them to fill up the, these six large stone jars to the brim, uh, there's one of two ways that you can do that. Either you can take like 100 trips to the well and with the bucket just keep on unloading into the, into the jars, or you can drag these six large stone jars to the well and kind of once and for all do that and then drag them back. Now, there's no indication that this wedding was near a well, and by every means, what Jesus was asking him to do was a long, mundane task that they were going to have to just trust that Jesus was going to do something with it. Here's what I know to be true about discipleship in my own life. It's not about these beautifully crafted Instagram, Instagrammable moments where my life has changed, but it's me being obedient to Jesus to, to do some things that are kind of mundane over a long period of time, trusting that Jesus will bring results. That's what discipleship is. Oftentimes doing mundane things over a long period of time, trusting that Jesus will bring results. So many people give up on scripture reading because they read something and it was like, well, it just wasn't that exciting. Every single day is not about reading the most exciting thing of your life. Oftentimes, what I know to be true in my own life is that it, the, the accumulation of reading over and over and over again, over time, over months, over years, has deposited something in my life. And oftentimes, nothing happened that day. But as you accumulate these mundane tasks over a long period of time, 
I've seen fruit in my own life. Paul picks up on this notion again in Galatians 6 and 9 where he says, Don't be weary in doing good work, for at the proper time you will reap a harvest if what? If you don't give up. You will reap a harvest in your life if you don't give up. If you started once upon a time to pray, and if you're new to church and you're new to faith, here's where I want you to start this week, just with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the power, the kingdom, the glory forever and ever. Go through that prayer line by line and just pray what it means for God to relate to God as your Father. What it means to... Uh, give up your will to his, what it means to ask for his kingdom to come in your life. Just pray that. And I'm not promising you anything's going to happen in a week. You might come back next week and feel absolutely nothing these seven days, but what if you kept up at it? For those of you who are reading scripture with us, what if you read and reread the gospel of John with us, and you might come back next week not having felt a thing, but what would happen if over the course of time you didn't give up? The nature of discipleship is doing mundane tasks like filling up water jars over a long period of time, trusting that Jesus will bring results. And that's what it means to relate to Jesus. As the days, as the wedding was going on, uh, it says that the servants brought this wine to the headmaster, the head waiter. And uh, where are my Caribbean people at? Caribbean people? Yes. And uh, where my African, my Nigerian people? Y'all in the building? There we go. Like, if you go to an American wedding, there's not really, like, an MC. You go to a Nigerian wedding or, like, a Haitian wedding, there's an MC there whose job it is to get that joint turned and to keep it turned the entire time. And so this is the person on the microphone. This is the person talking to everyone. This is the person with so much experience with doing weddings. This person presumably would be doing wedding after wedding all the time. And here's what he says to the servants. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine... He didn't know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He calls over to the groom and tells him, bro, everyone, who set, everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after uh, people are drunk, then they put out the inferior. But you have kept the best until now. This guy knows how weddings go, right? You start off with the $20 bottles and you end with the two-buck chuck. Nobody. Nobody starts with inferior and then gets better and better after time because someone's ability to be able to detect and to discern diminishes after you've had a couple of glasses. What is the sign pointing to? That Jesus saves the best for last. That Jesus gets better and better over time. That he's better than anything that you could have put out at first on your own. Here's what I know to be true about life that there's a gap in between what I hope for with everything and what I actually receive. That's true with everything, with relationships, with jobs, with vacations. There's always a gap between what I go into there hoping for and what I actually receive. There's a, a podcast called This American Life, and it has millions and millions, millions of subscribers, a few more than Renaissance has, and <laughs> make sure you subscribe and like and comment. And, uh, There was this one episode about this family that every year they would go to the Disneyland Hotel. Not Disneyland, the Disneyland Hotel. And they would spend a week at the Disneyland Hotel, and these kids were being tortured by the sounds of everyone else enjoying themselves on roller coasters, on water slides, on all of these amazing things. 
And year after year, these kids would spend about a week at this hotel, daydreaming and fantasizing about how wonderful it would be to finally go to Disneyland. One day, inexplicably, uh, as they went to the Disneyland hotel, the mother walks into the kids and hands them tickets and says, this year, we're going in. The kids, thinking their mother might have had a nervous breakdown, didn't say anything, and then that next morning, uh, barely having slept the night before, got a chance to go into Disneyland. And the narrator stopped her in the middle and said, wait, 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 how was it? Like, did it live up to what you had daydreamed and fantasized about for all those years? And she said, nah, it actually didn't. Like, it was good, make no mistake about it. It wasn't bad, they had a good time, but it didn't live up to what she thought it was gonna be. I think that shows us a little bit about life in general, that there's always a gap between what we hope for and what we actually get. So many couples struggle with this in their marriages because they're encountering this gap of what they hope for and what they're actually getting. So many people struggle with their jobs because there's this gap of what you hope for and what you've actually gotten, but not with Jesus. What has it shown us about the nature of Jesus? That with Jesus, it's the reverse. There's a gap in between what you thought he was going to bring for sure and what he actually can offer you. We come to Jesus with our expectations too low about what he can do in our life. Your version of Jesus is too small. His grace, too limited. His power, not enough. Jesus is bigger and better than our wildest imaginations. And this Jesus calls us to move in ways that are sometimes mundane. Sometimes it's for a long period of time, but he will bring fruit at the end. Jesus also calls us to rehearse this concept of his life and his death and his resurrection in something called communion. Communion is this practice that has been going on for 2,000 years where Jesus gathered his disciples around him. And as he gathered his disciples around him, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he took some wine, which represents his blood. As it says in Luke 22, uh, 20, it says in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. When Jesus pours out his blood, it's more than enough to cover for everything that we have done, are doing, and will do. And he calls us to come to him to remember him, not to take advantage of, but to remember him and his sacrifice for us in our lives. If you're someone who has placed your faith in Jesus during this next song, we invite you to come and to receive communion. And if you're a person like me who wrestles with guilt, I want you to come up thanking God for the abundance that he offers. Let me pray for us. God, our good and gracious Father, I thank you that you provide more than I could ever need. I thank you that you are more than enough, and that to place my life in your hands will continue to get sweeter and sweeter over time. God, give me confidence to know how much I'm loved and cared for and protected. Uh, Give me freedom to know that I am in you, free from guilt. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.